On this brand new Compete Everyday podcast, we welcome former CIA Senior Intelligence Officer Mark Polymeropoulos to talk about what it means to lead in the shadows. What's up, competitors? Jake Thompson here, Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day. And the world still may be shut down, but we are doing anything but slowing down here at the Compete Every Day podcast. Heck, just at Compete Every Day in general. As you guys know, we've had a number of new releases over the last month. My travel schedule speaking had slowed down for a while, but we've been doing a number of virtual trainings and workshops for companies and sales teams. And we have some really fun things coming for you here in the next few weeks, including the Daily Competitor, uh, which is a awesome new podcast show that's going to be quick hitter every day, five days a week, designed to get you in the right state of mind first thing in the morning, whether you're hitting the gym, whether you're going into work, whether you're just attacking the day. So stay tuned for ways to get plugged into that special podcast that's going to be launching as well as year two of the Arena Small Coaching Program is coming back and with a twist where we spend the next 52 weeks with a small group of competitors going through ways to build your resilience, build your competitor mindset, start having the type of influence as a leader you desire to have, and more importantly, help you build the daily processes to start achieving the goals you have for your work, your training, and your life. So keep an eye on your inbox over the next couple of weeks as we start to roll these programs out, the Daily Competitor, the Arena Coaching Program, and more. But man, today is a fun one as I get to talk to a former CIA senior intelligence officer about his new book, Leading in the Darkness, How to Lead Under Pressure. A lot of us are never going to be in the life and death situations that Mark was in, but the importance of being able to lead effectively when stressed, when all the pressure in the world is on you and your team, how can we better prepare for that? How can we do that effectively? There are a ton of great takeaways in this episode about leadership, leading under stress, and preparing for your opportunity. So stick with us for the entire show. Mark even has a brand new book out that he's going to get to talk about at the end that if any of these conversations and stories excite you, I want to highly encourage you to go check it out. As always, competitors, the best way to support the show is to share this episode with someone who has not heard the Compete Everyday podcast yet. Introduce them to Mark, the Compete Everyday brand. Introduce them to what we're all about. Get them hooked on building their competitor mindset and striving for more in their life, in their career, in their relationships, to quit settling, show up, and start competing. And as always, to save 15% on any order at CompeteEveryday.com, just use the code PODCAST. Now, let's welcome to the show, Mark. Let's talk about leading in the shadows and how to thrive when the pressure is highest. Mark, welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Hey, thanks for being here. As uh, as you shared right before we got online, you are very much the first uh, CIA operative uh, of really, I should say, any governmental operative we've had here on the show. Uh, and so our listeners are in for a treat as we kind of dive into leadership, adversity, and 
really an amazing career. Uh, but a lot of guys that have that career don't talk about it, don't get to talk about it. Uh, and so you have kind of started talking a little bit about the things you've learned, you've transitioned out of that now. Take us back really briefly. What inspired you to go to work in the first place in the CIA? What, what inspired kind of that? I guess from the outside, you think of it as like a James Bond, Jason Bourne type career. <laughs> right, sure. No, I think, you know, I, I had a, you know, I, I didn't have an unusual childhood. You know, I grew up in, you know, in, in uh, central Jersey. My dad was a college professor. And so, you know, I, I joke around all the time. I grew up, you know, listening to Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi and going to the Jersey Shore. So um, really not that, not unusual. But, you know, there are a couple of big moments in my life that kind of I look back and that led me to join, uh, uh, join the CIA, which was you know, really a, a wild adventure over 26 years. But I remember when I was 10 years old, my father um, was a college professor, as I, as I noted, he went to Algeria to do a sabbatical. And so I, my mom put me on an airplane when I was 10 and off we went, um, just me on the plane. And I met my dad and we drove 2000 miles in a Volkswagen minibus through the, through the Sahara desert, living, sleeping in oasis towns. And this was before kind of Algeria was kind of destroyed by, you know, kind of Islamic fundamentalist terrorist violence. So I had this wanderlust. And I think that, you know, if I look back on anything, it was, it was just this desire to do something kind of different. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine that that adventure alone has left such a, a unique mark on your life. Curious kind of how you transitioned from a career standpoint. How did you identify this is what I wanted to do and then kind of go through that process? Because for a lot of people listening, they probably have zero experience ever sure. talking to someone, knowing how someone even gets into that field in the first place. So I, you know, I went off to to college, and I, you know, I knew I wanted to do something with in the national security field. And and truth be told, you know, the CIA has has recruiters, and they come on campus. And I went to I graduated from Cornell University, and I remember going to the career fair, and you know, I walked in for an interview with the with the CIA recruiter, and there was a security guy outside with an earpiece because I think they were worried about protests on campus. Um, but I kind of expressed interest in, the, in in joining the agency. You know, you go you go through a background check that took for me. Um, almost, you know, 18 months. Uh, and so they kind of really dive into everything. You know, uh, I was, I, I was born in Greece. Again, my dad's Greek, my mom's American. So they had to look back at all my relatives, all the travel I'd done. And after 18 months, I guess they found that uh, I was suitable for employment. And, and off I went into kind of into a career that certainly was never dull. I always talk about, you know, I never had a, a boring day walking into the building, whether I was at headquarters or overseas, uh, you know, in the Middle East. Yeah, I, I'm curious from a, a standpoint of that transition piece and, and some of the conversations we've had here on the show are the transition for people that have gone from being an athlete to life after sports. They, sure. they lose that competitive rush sometimes. You probably had quite a few adrenaline-packed times throughout your career. You just shared there's never a dull day. How has transition life kind of outside the office a little bit changed for you? So it, that's a that's a fantastic question because you know the the on the operations side of the agency and, and CIA is made up of really a, a disparate bunch of individuals. You have kind of the, the mad scientists who create all the, the crazy kind of spy gear. You have the analysts who sit down and write products for the president or policymakers. But I was on the operations side, so you know we're really kind of uh, recruited uh, from amongst the folks who and a lot I think a lot based on your world too. You know type A personalities, really high achievers, people who can make decisions on their own. So you go, and even as a young officer, as you, as you move up through the agency, you have a tremendous amount of responsibility on your hands. You know, where our job is to spot assess, develop, and recruit spies to the United States government, which means you're out, you have someone's life in your hands. But all of a sudden, one day you wake up after kind of you turn in your, your, your badge, not your like FBI badge, but your badge to get in the building. And 
and your career's over and, and you know, you're not, maybe you're not as special anymore. Um, you had a lot of great adventures. You certainly had access to all the secrets of the United States government, but um, you know, you, you, don't, you really don't, you don't have that same sense of camaraderie, that, that kind of unit, that, that teamwork that really drove me so much. And so, you know, that, that, that actually ended up helping me transition because I, st I started thinking about what I wanted to do and I wanted to talk about leadership and, and, and talk about what I had learned over those 26 years. I love it. I love that. And you, as you just shared earlier with me, have just finished kind of the writing piece of a book that's going to be coming out later this year uh, that we'll be excited to share when it comes out that dives into some of these leadership principles. But one of the things you shared there is about the idea of developing spies and developing these people's lives in your hands and, and any kind of relationship building, especially I would imagine the world of spying is around trust. Yep. building trust. And that's a big piece of leadership is how do we build trust with the people we're trying to lead effectively. And so what are some things you've learned throughout your career uh, on the good side and, and things to avoid in terms of how do we effectively build trust as leaders in those that want to follow us or that those we're trying to infect effectively empower? Sure. So I think there's two parts of this. One is, you know, again, my role as spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, and handling an agent. That's not that's, you know, CIAs have officers, FBI has agents, but an agent in my world was a foreigner who we, we recruited from perhaps an intelligence service or a foreign ministry to, to pass us secrets. So how you build trust with someone like that is, is I think, different than how I built trust in the teams that I led. So I'll, I'll kind of I'll start with the, the first point. And, and look, you know, when, when we're looking at a prospective agent candidate, you're looking at someone who's got, you know, uh, who's disgruntled in some manner. Maybe they hate their system. You know, in the old days, it was communism versus capitalism. Um, now it might be something different. For example, if you take a look at the current crisis, you know, we would look to recruit, you know, Chinese scientists who realize what has happened in China really is at a disastrous effect on the world. So you look for a motivation that they have. Um, and then you develop this relationship out of trust. And, and it's almost like I call it like a, a romance or a marriage where, you know, at, at the end of the day that, you know, you have their life in their hands. Now we're going to give something to them and probably financial compensation. Maybe we'll help a kid go to college or, or university. But that trust piece is is, uh, uh, is enormous because as I, I I talk about in my book a, a vignette where uh, an agent of ours a, a, an established agent he, he sat me down one time as we were we were giving him some training he he was the member of a Middle Eastern um, government and he said he said Mark look you know every day you go to work and I know you know you go home in the summers from you know back to the United States and and you have other things that you think about but I really think about you every single day because you make one mistake I'm going to die. So that's a different, that's, that's a kind of trust yeah. you have to really build. Separately, in terms of leadership for the units um, that, that I led, you know, the, the biggest thing that I always talked about, and I call it, and it's kind of a, it's a cliche, but I call it, you know, family values in the sense of, you, you, you know, you build a team that is so cohesive. You know, the Navy SEALs have this down in droves. CIA does as well. We don't talk about it as much. Um, but it's kind of a brotherhood and a sisterhood uh, where, you know, you lead, uh, you know, from the front, but you also lead by, you know, receiving input. Um, uh, from individuals and, you know, and it's it, the, the final piece is that it's not about you, you know, it's about the team. And, and you know, once you make that transition in your mind, um, you know, things can, uh, can go uh, much, much um, more smoothly. And that, that frankly is when you go back to what I miss the most, it's kind of that feeling of, of doing something for the collective good. I love that. I love that. Well, and, and I'm curious along those lines as well, because when you're trying to lead effectively, you're trying to focus on the things you control, but you're always influenced and impacted by the things outside of your control. Right. Us being kind of coming up with election year and everybody kind of on the basic general population level, they have their parties the way they love to vote. 
but I'll say from my personal experience, who's in office hasn't dramatically changed my life one way or another. It'll impact some taxes regardless of which party or whatever. But when you're working in a government agency, I would imagine changes in the commander in chief change some of the ways you have to operate. And that impacts how you're able to lead your team or do some of your tasks. Having over well over 20 years plus experience working with the government, being in the CIA role, how did y'all handle those things outside of your control? How did you help your team maintain focus when things would change, administrations would change, global climate might change completely outside of your ability to directly change those things? Sure, and, and that goes kind of kind of to something that that you know one always had to embrace is you can always control you know so much. So you know what can you affect in your in your small circle? And that again that has to do with kind of being mission focused, driven, having this kind of unit cohesion. But you're right, there are external factors that, that come into play. Maybe U.S. policy changes. Um, you know, one of the hardest things that, that, that I've seen recently in the news that I experienced over my career was we work with indigenous forces. So whether it's in Iraq with the Kurds, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Afghanistan with, um, with, our, with our allies in the fight against the Taliban and, and, and Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, we go into places in small teams and we have this kind of uh, uh, amazing effect where we provide training um, sometimes we provide intelligence, sometimes, you know, we can assist with combat power, but then the political dynamic might change. And then, and then all of a sudden that, that, that support is turned off. And psychologically that actually, to me, was the hardest part because when I, when I lived in Afghanistan, when I lived in Iraq, you know, I still remember the faces of the, the, the indigenous forces we trained and often, you know, there's oftentimes the case where, where conflicts end and you end up feeling a little bit that we betrayed these folks. And so, you know, that's something that just kind of you, you deal with when you kind of deal with unconventional warfare. Um, uh, but, but I think that's the biggest effect of, of changes in administrations because policies changed and we kind of, we have to move on. Yeah. How, how just I'm curious on a personal level, if you don't mind sharing, how did you mentally deal with some of those things? Did you, did you guys meet with someone? Did you create a daily ritual that helped you keep that focus? How, how were you able to kind of recover mentally from that? Because I imagine a lot of people listening may not have to that extreme, uh, but some of those things outside of their control, especially with given the state of the, the landscape right now, have kind of shaken them. And they may be thinking like, I need a new routine or I need some new method to, to recenter my thoughts. So there's, there's, I think there's two things uh, on that question. One is, you know, individually, what do you need to do? And that, you know, that to me is, as I, as I you know, as, as I ran teams um, in kind of harsh overseas environments, um, you know, it was absolutely critical, critical for kind of, you know, kind of both mental and physical ability. Cause we, so we do two things. One is, and this is sounds, sounds obvious is working out. Um, so no, CIA, no matter where we were, we would have a great gym. Um, you know, we were always able to do that. We always got gym equipment. So, so working out was key. And the other and, and is kind of the mental aspect of keeping kind of the team together. And I called it, um, for lack of a better term, I called it caveman TV and that's a fire pit. And I mean that seriously. So I've sat around more fire pits in Afghanistan and Iraq. Sometimes we might have acquired a tasty kind of a beverage or two. So, you know, we get, get our, our friends in the local economy to get us some beer, but you sit around and, and you talk at night. Um, so, you know, those are two kind of critical aspects. The final piece of that though, and I think that's important is we also have our indigenous allies as well. So, uh, you know, one of the things I'll never forget a conversation I had, this was 2002 in the mountains of Kurdistan, you know, uh, in Northern Iraq, before we went in for the invasion of Iraq. And I was talking to a senior Kurdish leader and I was giving him my spiel on the United States and we're going to promote democracy and freedom. And he said, stop, you know, I, you know, don't, don't do this BS to me. Like, 
we're going to use you as much as you use us. And it's going to be kind of a transactional relationship. And I thought about that a lot afterwards because in the end, when actually we, sometimes we do have to pull support, sometimes having those honest discussions are, are not bad at all. And it was kind of really telling me, because then you don't feel as bad about it. You didn't, um, cause you know, it's a, you know, these are kind of fleeting moments. Uh, and then the U S and, and, you know, does move on. I love that, man. And, and having, having crucial tough conversations sometimes is it's important whether you're in that situation overseas or you're sitting in an office. And right. part of that is, is for that relationship building, that trust building, uh, because some of the hardest conversations you have are with some of the people you care and respect the most, um, which sometimes aren't the easiest to have. When you had to have some of those tough conversations, how did you prepare for them? Was it, hey, I'm going to be open and transparent? Or you, you know, like, because that's something when you walk into, like, you already have that internal just like, ugh, before you have to have it. So, you know, as you know, when I, when I think about the principles of, of, of leadership that I developed over these, over this time, you know, one of them had to do with um, developing officers, you know, developing the people around me. And, and a lot of it had to do with tough discussions because it does nobody any good to kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, paper something that, uh, uh, or, or kind of, uh, you know, beat around the bush. So I was always very direct and honest. And I think, you know, when you do that, um, uh, first of all, it, it, it sends a very effective message. Um, but it also builds trust with, with your employees as well. And, and I'll send it, and I'll take it even another layer and I'll give you a story on this. Um, it also, because it also builds trust with the people above you, your superiors. So, you know, there was, there was a, uh, an instance, and I'm trying to think of saying this without uh, getting in too much trouble, but, um, we were on a counterterrorism operation and we incurred some civilian casualties, which is something you never want to do. Now, under the law of armed conflict, it, it was, it was legal what we did. Um, uh, but nonetheless, not, not, uh, uh, a good picture. And, and we made some mistakes. Um, so the first thing I did and called in my team and I said, okay, you know, you know, like we have to do a quick after action. What went wrong here? And there was an officer who, who made a mistake and I said, got it. We're going to fix these three things and then we're going to move on. And then I went, you know, for lack of a better term upstairs and I had to talk to my superiors. And in fact, this it was, it was the leadership of, 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 uh, of CIA. And when I went up there and I said, okay, first of all, this operation, the results of it is on me. I take full responsibility for it. Um, there is no one other than, than the person you're looking at uh, uh, who, who is at fault. That said, we've already put in three measures in which we're going to, you know, we, we've fixed our procedures. Um, uh, we've implemented them already. You know, any questions? And, and there's silence after that. So what does that do? That number one allows your superiors to have, to have faith in you. Um, that you took that responsibility because because you know at, at the end of the day that's a that you, you can't you can't deflect that but then the team that you're running looks to you uh, uh, you know in a different light as well because you were honest with the discipline you had to do at the lower end but you, you it's not that you covered for them but you're the leader you you know you, you took it on your uh, upon yourself and I, I love that story all the time it wasn't fun at the time um, but it really uh, uh, made me kind of think and then implement that later on in my career that that's the way you should really lead. Yeah, well, personal responsibility through and through is is an incredibly effective piece of leadership and being an effective leader because your team right there, had you not passed out discipline for them, they wouldn't have been as locked in or so-and-so might have been, quote, looked at that they were given preferential treatment, which is what we see in offices all the time. But at the same time, you owned your role as team leader with the higher-ups. Uh, and I think that's something incredibly relevant for our listeners today. 
I want to talk a briefly a little bit about your book because I know it focuses on these principles that you refer to as finding clarity in the shadows. And I'm curious about that, that phrase and that philosophy sure. that is, sounds like it's the foundation of this new book. So, so, you know, I, I came up with this because so much of what we do in, in, in the intelligence world is gray. It is the shadows. And so, you know, leading in situations where there's total clarity, when there, where you have complete situa situational awareness is easy. You know, anybody can do that. Um, you know, you, you, uh, whether it's a, and, and again, it can be in my world, it can be in the, the world of US military, it can be in banking, it can be in sports. When times are easy, it's easy to lead. What I'm talking about is when you have, uh, uh, you know, times of, of great uncertainty. And so, you know, what I, what I came up with is nine principles on, on actually, and you build upon them, but on how to lead effectively when there is so much uh, uh, ambiguity. And not only to, to, to leave, but also to embrace that. So when there is times of trouble, when there is these times um, uh, in which other people would flee, would never want to make a decision, you actually are like, I got this. And I got this because I know that I put together several core concepts um, that give me the ability and the, and the confidence to make decisions um, and, you know, to, to do so with, uh, with no fear. And it's, you know, none of this, you know, all of this is learned from, you know, the streets of, you know, Beirut, Damascus, Cairo, Kuwait, you know, the third world, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and really tough times. I haven't read leadership books. Um, I'm not a leadership guru in any sense. Um, it was really kind of just from, from principles of, of dealing, you know, what I call in the shadows. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very confident that, uh, that people are going to respond to this, uh, uh, because that's life, you know, uh, every, whether you're a doctor in, the, in an ER, um, or an account executive or, or a manager of a sports team, um, nothing's ever clear. And so this is kind of a, a, a nice little playbook, a nice little guidebook that'll, uh, that'll help you get through. I'm curious about a piece of the book, if it's in there, and as well as your own experience of dealing with those high pressure situations. What, what do you think helps people best perform when the pressure's highest? Sure. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a quick vignette. Um, and and I, I love doing these because the stories are sto what everyone seems to like, but we were, I was in the Middle Eastern country. We are the, the U S embassy was under attack by Al Qaeda. So I was in the back, I was getting a cup of coffee. I hear automatic weapons fire. Um, the Marines come over the kind of the, the communication system scream. We're under attack, which we kind of knew because there were grenades getting tossed on the top of the building and then it cuts out. So we have no situational awareness at all. And I run to, I was the deputy of the office. I run to my boss who's a former Navy SEAL. We'd been together in Iraq earlier, you know, years ago, uh, years prior. And so we had a lot of trust in each other. Um, and he said, all right, break open the weapon safe. So our, you know, so, you know, the CIA officers don't generally carry weapons, but in times of extremis, and I sat there and I'm trying to open the safe and my heart rate went from zero to hundred. Um, and I am frankly terrified, but I finally got it open and I, we, you know, passed out weapons. We kind of set up the office to deter, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, intrusion. We have people with body armor on. Fortunately, things worked out, you know, the, the Marines and the, the security guards outside the embassy battled back Al Qaeda, car bomb hit the back gate, didn't detonate. But afterwards, when we did our after action, I kind of, I talked to my officers and I said, um, uh, you know, okay, you know, you know, how'd we do? And they all said, well, you looked so calm. Now I was crapping my pants. I've never been so scared in my life. And so, so I can't, so one of the things I came up with and the reason why I raised it is, is the principle, you know, and I call it win an Oscar. I mean, I have all these catchy phrases, but the idea is, you know, in times of, of great danger or uncertainty, the leader in the organization has to have, you know, a face in which they, they show confidence. Now that doesn't mean it's confidence as in I'm the boss, you listen to me. You know, sometimes it could be like, all right, I got this, but you know, you welcome input, but you got to be the one 
you know, to kind of to kind of show confidence in the face of you know so much uh, danger, ambiguity. Sometimes things are scary, and this can apply to anybody. If you rolled into an ER right now, uh, the last thing you want to do is a doctor have a doctor who's you know looks scared to death. Now you might be about to die, but you want that doctor to say to you, "I got this. We're good." Um, so it's it's kind of a really really basic principle, but it means so much because it's because again, confidence is is infectious. It's funny you say that. I have a friend that was is still in need of shoulder surgery, uh, kind of before all COVID and everything hit. And he was asking our opinion at dinner one night because he'd met with these two to three people. And, and one guy was like the godfather of this surgery here locally right. in DFW. And, but he couldn't get in to see this guy for six to 12 months. And he was like, I don't know if I want to wait. And I said, well, what about these other guys? He said, well, one guy I kind of liked, but when I asked him, he was like, are you getting other ins uh, consults? And he said, yeah. And I told him one of the other doctors, he's like, oh man, he's the best. Like, and I looked at my buddy and I was like, that's not the guy then. I was like, <laughs> I want my doctor, even if he's not to be so cocky, he's like, I can do this. I can I do it this. great. Like, right. yeah not like to bow in front of someone else. I was like, in certain situations, like you want that confidence that of like, I got this, I can handle it. So uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another great story. So we we're in Afghanistan. I was running a, a team in, a long, in Eastern Afghanistan along the border with Pakistan. And so I was the boss. I was, I was the base chief. Now under me, I had all sorts of different officers, operations officers, but I also had what we call paramilitary officers who are kind of really designed to train the indigenous forces. And some of them are, you know, were former U.S. Special Operations veterans who later joined the agency. But I'm talking about former SEALs, former members of, you know, special for Army Special Forces members. These are really tough dudes. And we went on patrol one day, and I never, I, I didn't actually, I rarely went out because, uh, because the last thing they want to do is worry about the base chief getting killed. But every once in a while, every week or so, I'd, I'd go out on patrol into the Taliban country. So we go out, I come back, 36 hours, I haven't slept. I'm tired, you know, I got bed bugs. I tell it's great, I got bed bugs sleeping in an observation post. So we go into our chow hall and I want to get somebody. You know, ordinarily, it's just my personality. I'd always eat with everybody. I'd ask them how they're doing, how their families are doing back home. But this one time I hadn't, I hadn't slept for a day and a half and I sat by myself and it was like the world ended. And these are the toughest dudes of all time. And, and I could hear like, what's wrong with Mark? Like, what did we do? And I was like, oh my God. And again, this is when I came up with this, this principle again of like, what over, you know, what, what this leadership. Now, what I should have done is say, all right, all right, you know, all right, everybody, I'm tired. Like, I'm going to eat by myself. Like, don't worry about it. I need some alone time. But I didn't. And the base nearly fell apart. And it was, you know, it's so telling to me. Um, uh, uh, and we joked about it, you know, uh, after I, I ended up gathering them all at the fire pit that night and said, all right, you know, come on. I thought you guys were a lot tougher than this. And they all laughed. But it really does matter, you know, because, you know, what you, you know, the kind of the vibe you give every day. Yeah, well, and, and just the simple fact that, that you admitted, hey, if I just made the announcement, communicated, here's what's going on, here's what I want, how much that would have helped. And, and that, I mean, that's paramount for any relationship. I laugh like my wife and I rarely ever on the same page. And some <laughs> of it's simply the matter of like, we just need to better communicate because when we see something, we see somebody behave a certain way and then we think, well, that's how I'd behave if I was feeling this way Absolutely. when that's not them at all. And so one of the keys, obviously, to effective leadership is effective communication. Mark, your book is coming out soon. I know it's not quite yet available, but we're going to be linking when it is. But in the interim, where can people learn more about you, follow you on social media and best get connected? So, so, so uh, uh, I'm on Twitter um, and it's at M polymer and I, you know, uh, uh, forgive me. It's it's a it's a wild Twitter account because I talk about leadership. I also talk about baseball, 
I talked about. I see, well, I was about to say I saw that yeah. that World Series Washington National shirt on. That's right. Um, I, uh, so I'm a huge baseball fan. My son's going off to play college baseball. If we ever get there, um, uh, I talk. I do. I, I love dive bars. I talk about dive bar. I love food, and then I then it gets a little political too. And and you know one of the things that I promised uh, you know the the you know my agent is that I I wouldn't get political in this book. Um, because actually, you know, when you, when you write a book, you want to sell it to everybody. Yep. Uh, but, uh, but on, on my Twitter account, you'll see some, some criticisms here or there perhaps. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh kind of don't hold me to that uh, too much. And then, you know, the other piece is that, that if, if we ever get back to normal, I do go out and, uh, and, and give speeches on leadership. Um, and I'm represented by the Harry Walker agency. So certainly, you know, that's something that we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do in the future, but for now it's, uh, just getting the book ready, talking to, you know, uh, great folks like yourself. Um, and, uh, and, and just kind of, you know, continuously trying to, to think about how I can even modify my principles. One of the things that that's really interesting right now, and probably it's a, it's a subject for a later podcast is looking at leadership in the age of, of COVID, um, our national leaders, our state leaders, you know, uh, uh, it's a, it's probably a, uh, things that, you know, uh, business schools are going to, going to talk about for, for a long time. Captain Crozier, who was removed from the captain as, as the, as the yeah. aircraft carrier Roosevelt. I mean, so many things to look at, press conferences every day. So my head almost explodes because I, I love this stuff and I'm kind of a leadership geek. Uh, so, so maybe that's a subject of a, of a, a future, uh, future chat. I'm actually fascinated. I told someone the other day, I'm fascinated five years from now to see the documentaries looking back on this and some of the aftermath. And, and I laughed, I was like, it's gonna be like the Firefest but you're going to have to watch. There's going to probably be three. There's going to be one very left, one very right, and maybe right. one in the middle. And so you're going to watch all three and get a dramatically different view of America and leadership during the course of it. And then you're going to have to pull the common threads, which I'm like a pull little stories out like you of, of what can we use? What can we talk about? Right. As someone that's a, a baseball fan, currently we are mid-May recording, recording this and we oh. are still waiting on our game of baseball right. to be back. What's your expectations for your uh, your reigning champs this year when the season eventually kicks off, which sounds like it's going to be July? So, you know, losing uh, losing Tony, losing uh, Anthony Rendon, yep. it was a tough blow. But I'm wearing my actually my Juan Soto shirt right here. So he's such a heck of a player. You know, my it's, it's funny. We went, my son, uh, again, played competitive baseball, and he's off going to college. But we went down to the Dominican Republic two years ago on a, kind of on a select team. Um, and we visited the Nats Academy, and boy, were they crazy about Juan Soto. So he's just turned into this really electric player. But look, the Nats have great pitching. But the thing about baseball right now is if this thing comes to fruition, um, the plan that I've read is the Nats, the Red Sox, and the Yankees are going to be all in the same uh, kind of division together. And that's like a dream for any baseball fan. And so we're going to go crazy here in Washington if, if we can even actually get to a game. I was about to say, if you can get yeah. to a game. I, you know, it's funny. I, I'm sad about Rendon didn't stay with y'all simply because I'm a Rangers fan and he went not to us like we thought, but I to the rivals. Yeah. Right. We did too. Uh, but then, I, you know, you look at it from the, the sports stand, you're betting hopefully at some point, if that ends up, it'd be, it ends up being kind of a weird conglomeration division this year. Like what better time to go? Like I want to go to a game, and, and oh, I've laughed that we reserved hotels in two cities this fall, Kansas City and, and Charlotte, because I'm a Panthers football fan, and I'm like, right. I want to see a game in Arrowhead. And they're like, Well, what if there's no NFL like fans or it's limited? I'm like, I want to go. Like this is like one of those like we'll know something by August, and I would love to be back in a baseball stadium, football stadium. So hopefully right. when your book is coming out, you are able to hold it in hand and celebrate in a stadium with 
another good run by the Nats. I know my one of my best friends is a diehard Nationals fan. Oh yeah. So he was uh, he was over the moon, and his poor wife, who's a Giants fan, was not. So I'll tell you, uh, so I, we went to the uh, the wild card game where uh, where the Nats beat the Brewers. One of the most incredible kind of live sports moments. We are a crazy sports family, so we are suffering now. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, so and and one 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 thing to throw in here, and this you know going a little bit. So are back, you Redskins too and Wizards? I'm not. I'm okay. Not, I'm, so again, I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm a Giants. Uh, okay. Okay. They're terrible. But 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 going back to kind of the you know the I, I and I and I actually speak on this um, uh, every once in a while as well. There are parallels between the intelligence business and baseball. Um, and, and I love, you know, kind of these, these comparisons because, again, you have to deal, you know, baseball is one of the hardest sports. You have to deal with adversity constantly. Well, same thing in the intelligence business. You know, if you hit 300, you know, you're going to be an all-star. Well, as, you, as my job as an old operations officer, spot assess, develop, and recruit someone, you know, you have to go out and try to meet a lot of Russians and Chinese and Pakistani officials. And if you recruit three out of 10, you know, I, you, got, you got a wall full of medals. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're the, the concepts of team, you know, the, one of my favorite baseball concepts, which I talk about in, in CIA kind of leadership classes is the glue guy. You know, the glue guy in sports is a critical component of a successful team. Same exact thing in the intelligence world where, you know, okay, glue guy can be someone coming off the bench, a, you know, a pinch hitter um, who's consistently just, you know, uh, you know, crushed it that whole year. And everyone knows that's the kind of the, the key cohesive uh, individual in the team of superstars. Well, let's say I'm, I'm uh, in the intelligence business. I'm going out to meet an agent on the streets. That's, you know, uh, and so I have to go out. I have to do what's a surveillance detection route. So I got to take a lot of stops, a lot of turns, everything. Sometimes colleagues of mine will go out on the street to provide me protection as well. They'll have the meeting site. They're watching to see if it's going to be a setup or an ambush. That person's been on the street for hours. They get no glory. I, I collect the intelligence. I write it up. President reads it. They say, hey, we get a, a note back to the CIA. Hey, man. That, that, who, you know, that was awesome. Like that changed U.S. policy. That person who went out and, and protected my butt, that's the glue guy. Same thing as someone who's a, you know, who's a, who's a, you know, a superstar pinch hitter. So I love the parallels between baseball and, uh, um, uh, and the agency and kind of the whole kind of leadership principles. And, and uh, you know, you can apply to, to other sports as well. Well, I know, I know you mentioned you're not a leadership book guy, but if you've not read The Captain Class by Sam Walker, I'm going to plant a seed. Okay. It looks at – the greatest teams in sports history. And he has a really dynasty more than just singular season team. And he's got criteria he goes through, like Jordan's Bulls don't make the list because of the split. Uh, And and he looks at the captains and their styles of leadership. And what are the different traits that you can pull out on each one? And it's not always the most athletic. It's not always the loudest. And and so as someone that loves the parallels from where you see in the government field and operatives to sports, uh, I think you would enjoy this as a sports fan. I found it fascinating to read through um, as well. So Mark, man, we've got links to your, we'll have links to your book when it goes live. We've got links to your social media. More than anything, I just want to thank you for your time today. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with me or the show, email us at podcast at competeeveryday.com. To join our free Facebook community and get connected with other ambitious leaders working to win their work, their workouts, and their life, be sure to visit us at facebook.com slash groups slash compete every day. Until the next episode, keep competing every single day because your life is worth it.